Hello. Do you remember last month? We started to talk about place names. Well, there were so many great examples brought to us by Richard Tice that I decided to split his workshop in two. And, as promised, today we're going to hear part two. This time, place names in English language haiku. I hope that it will inspire your submissions to Poetry Bee this month, which of course is the topic of place names. I'm Patricia, the host of the Haiku Bee podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. We're going to hear many, many great examples of English language haiku. From my guests, David J. Kelly and Richard Tice. Now, as I said, we're going to talk place names with Richard. But first of all, I have another treat for you. We're going to hear David J. Kelly reading from his book, Small Hadron Divider which was a Touchstone Distinguished Books Honourable Mention, 2020. David, welcome to the podcast. It's a delight to finally meet you, albeit virtually, having read your work for the last few years. Regulars to the podcast will have heard your work and you very recently created a haiku moment for us, which people can see if they go to the website or directly to the Poetry P YouTube channel. But if you don't know about David, here's a little bit about him. David J. Kelly is a scientist by training. He's got a PhD in zoology, but has been fascinated by the music of language for longer than he can remember. He says his hobbies are birds and words. And his first collection, Hammerscale from the Thrush's Anvil, was published in November 2016 by Alba Publishing and Small Hadron Divider by Red Moon Press in 2020. In fact, Small Hadron Divider was recognised with an honourable mention in the Touchstone Awards by the Haiku Foundation. Congratulations, David. Thank you very much. Johannes S. H. Bjerg said of it, in this collection, you will get samples of it all, of human emotions and states of mind as they pass through David J. Kelly, be it self-irony, observations of human nature, and nature as nature, carefully expressed in the subgenre of haikai, haiku, senryu, haibun, concrete haiku, and more. A palette of many colours worth reading and reading again. Now, according to the Haiku Foundation, and I'm sure David will tell us if this is true in a sec, the name derives from the particle accelerator Large Hadron Collider in CERN, Switzerland. Is that right now, David? Um, it, I borrowed from that name. <laughs> so um, because the sections within the book are relating to the flavours of quarks and the introduction to the book will explain that in more detail. Oh. Um, but because these are pieces of um, protons and um, neutrons, then it seems that thinking about atom smashers was a way of finding out how you get to a quark in the first place. So it borrows from the structure of that name. I see. I have to say, all matters CERN goes right over my head. Really sorry about that. I'm too dim. But I have been to CERN and uh, played cricket on their cricket pitch. 
you can be the judge of David's poetry now because we're going to have a reading. I'm going to read the poems first and David will follow. We thought it might be interesting to do an experiment on the interpretation of the reader versus the intention of the poet. Overthinking, thinking it over, I'm overthinking. Overthinking, thinking it over, I'm overthinking. Interesting, okay. Light and mild, the drinker becomes the drink. Light and mild, the drinker becomes the drink. Orange tipped, a butterfly's wing dips into sunset. Orange tipped, a butterfly's wing dips into sunset. Footloose, a young foal learning to balance. Footloose, a young foal learning to balance. Vermilion, too many poppies to count. Vermilion, too many poppies to count. Silence descends as far as the ear can hear, flake by flake. Silence descends as far as the ear can hear, flake by flake. Broken sleep, the wind hurls the morning around me. Broken sleep. The wind hurls the morning around me. Behind the pigeon, a folded falcon unfolding. Behind the pigeon, a folded falcon unfolding. So it was interesting that I think we agreed in most of them apart from the first one. Mm -hmm. And maybe Up. some slight differences in intonation of some of the words as well. Yes, absolutely. I'm very glad to let you read it because I like your version of overthinking better than my version. <laughs> oh, very good. I'm delighted to say as well that David has got an example of Haibun from his book to read to us as well. So David, over to you for that, please. Each of the sections within the um, collection has a, a Haibun to um, effectively introduce you to that section. This one is from the charm section and it's called Ladybird, Ladybird. I used to fly in my dreams, using a weird arm swinging action, which I perfected in earlier dreams, it was possible to counteract gravity. By jumping into the air and using my clever technique, I could stay aloft. With practice, I learned a rudimentary form of steering, but it never worked well in strong winds. On reflection, it was quite like hot air ballooning, but without either hot air or a balloon. Frenzied movement hides the calm beneath, inverted swan. Apparently, dreams about flying suggest the dreamer wants to escape from a pressurized situation. That idea never occurred to me at the time. In my dreams, it seemed to me I was simply showing off I delight in the startlement of passers-by as they met me in mid-flight. Comings and goings between open mouths fly by night. 
I've no recollection of emotion from those dreams. The abiding memory is one of curiosity, the ability to investigate a new part of the world and the new perspective it offered. Maybe it was a sort of self-analysis looking down on my world from a position of detachment. Maybe it was a form of lucid dreaming where I wanted to fly and found the means to allow myself that indulgence. Back down to earth, rising from a pillow with windswept hair. Thanks, David. I read recently, I think it was Mike Railing from uh, Failed Haiku. He said he always reads the poetry section part of a haibun first and makes his decision when he's choosing them based on the, on the poetry. And I wondered, listening to you read, what comes first with you, the poetry or the prose? It's not fixed, but okay. um, I believe it's generally easier if you have your haiku to start with. So if you are exploring situation or a location and emotion, if it's possible to collect a few haiku from that, you can then write a story around those. That tends to be a lot easier than having a story with no haiku and then trying to fit something into it because Sadly, you generally see the cracks in those things. Oh, that's interesting. So you, you had this series of haiku and then wrote the story around them. Is that how it worked for you? I'm, I'm not entirely sure how this one came about. I think there were maybe some haiku, but not all of the ones that are here, and a story. And the two came together fortuitously. Before I let you go, I have to ask, you've had two books published now. How did you go about getting your first book published? Um, I think I was quite fortunate because I actually knew the name of a publisher. So not just the company, you mentioned um, Alba Publishing, mm -hmm. but actually knew um, the person who ran that publishing house. Okay. Um, because they have connections with a number of other um, poets, haiku poets within Dublin. So oh. I attended a number of book launches, and as time went by, I'd collected um, sufficient material that I thought there was a collection there. Mm -hmm. And I organised that in some way and then sent it along to this person. I even managed to raise the subject with them at the end of one of the book launches. And so it didn't even come as a surprise when that collection was sent. Now, I, I believe that's a position of privilege um, and other people may have to approach these people without that introduction, but I'm sure that's the best that you can do. You can get your work into some sort of order and then send it along to people who you believe are interested in publishing this specific type of work yes and i think if you're interested in haiku you'll you'll know the publishing houses who would be interested in talking to you in the first instance and then obviously having had the first book published was it then easier to follow that up for the second one i found making the second collection more demanding than making the first collection I'm told that numerous 
authors of all different genres find um, the second book or collection more difficult to get a handle on than the first. And it took me a long time to decide what sort of structure I might want to it. The first collection and the second collection both have um, a number of sections and each of those sections start with hybrid and that felt like a good way of structuring the second book. But I, I wasn't happy that I had a way of linking the various sections. And so I cast about for some time before coming to the bark flavors, which coincidentally have a number of different useful headings. So if I may just list them, there are six. Mm-hmm. There are up and down, top and bottom, strange and charm. And so if you interpret those liberally, you can move off in all sorts of different directions. And that proved very, very useful for grouping the work together. Did you get any help and advice from publishers on what what you needed to do? I was very lucky that I basically looked at the work of other writers and found some themes to the way people were presenting their work. And I chose a style of presentation that I was most comfortable with. Now, I've seen other people work with maybe even a single theme on their entire collection. I don't think I can offer such focused work as that. Um, So I had to find a way of offering um, subheadings. And perhaps the reason I chose the Quark flavors was it offered me more subheadings than the previous collection. I think you made a good point there, actually, that if if somebody is considering putting a collection together or considering going to a publisher, they should try and get hold of and read and analyse some of the output of that publisher, of of the haiku poets within that stable, so that they can basically have an idea of of what to do and how to approach the the whole thing. Yes, and what's what's interesting as well is that there are quite a large number of collections now available as free ebooks online. I think some publishers say after 15 or 20 years, then they, they automatically make them available. So there's, there's no need to have a hard copy at that point. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's certainly very useful. And other people decide that they don't necessarily want a physical collection. They're, they're quite happy to have the thing as a document, a virtual mm. um, a collection. And so you're free to explore them at that point. Thank you for the advice for people who are starting out thinking about putting their first collection together. It's really very, very useful. And thank you so much for that reading. And I just wanted to go back to one of the poems. The great thing about talking to other poets and listening to other poets is that I learn so much. And each time I speak to another poet, it inspires me to go ahead and and write some more poems myself. And this poem that I'm going to read again really made me quite envious of your work. And the poem in question was, Broken sleep, the wind hurls the morning around me. Broken sleep, the wind hurls the morning around me. I can just see myself now lying in bed, tossing and turning and quite cross that I haven't 
had a good night's sleep and a storm raging outside the window. It's, it's just fabulous. And as with many really successful haiku, it's very simple, very simple. But it says everything in just those three simple lines, doesn't it? Delighted you like it. And I think it, maybe the language it uses is a little unusual. And so perhaps one of the things that does is it didn't, doesn't give you quite such a concrete image. It gives you a, a feeling of something happening rather than an exact image. And so then what you do is you use your imagination to fill the gaps. And that's one of the things that can make um, this writing very different to different readers because they bring their own experience to it. And so each, each reader can find a slightly different aspect. Yes, you're right. Again, another very important point that we should allow our poem some space or some space within the poem for that reader to come along and, and make it their own. And I think the word that makes it, does that for me, is hurls. The wind hurls the morning around me. It's such an unusual way of expressing it. As you said, it's not, it's not a concrete image, is it? It's, mm. It allows me to utilize my imagination within your poem and it's just beautiful thank you and it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast i hope you'll come back again are you putting it together another collection um i i feel that i've reached a point at the end of this collection where i, I wasn't quite sure what came next oh. so there, there could easily be another collection, but it's something that's coming together rather more slowly than the previous two. Okay. And how did you feel getting the Touchstone nomination? Blown away. <laughs> um, I had been considering the various different reviews that I'd seen of the collection in places like Blythe Spirit and Presence and Frog Pond and modern haiku and it felt that there was a generally upbeat review of them but no one was saying this is excellent or wonderful and this is exemplary work and so to find that a jury a sort of a group of people together a committee were choosing it over so many other collections that were out there was a big surprise amongst other things I can't imagine how excited you, you would have been. I would have been over the moon myself. So congratulations again for getting an honourable mention. And if anyone wants to buy Small Hadron Divider, how do they go about doing it? Well, it's published by Red Moon Press. So I believe you could, if you're in the States, get in touch with them. Um, it's on their website as one of the collections available. Um, but if you happen to be based in Europe, it's probably easier to communicate with me through Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Moto Sakura, which is my attempt at Japanese. So that's M-O-T-T-O underscore S-A-K-U-R-A, um, which is an attempt to say more cherry blossom. But if you're scrabbling around for your pens and pencils at the moment, don't worry. I will put the Twitter handle in the show notes 
as well as the address, the web address for Red Moon Press. So you'll have both there. So wherever you are in the world, you'll be able to get hold of David or his representatives and get hold of the book. So again, thank you so much, David, for coming along today and reading to us. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Patricia, for the opportunity to do so. I hope you enjoyed that reading from David and his chat about publishing. And if you were thinking of trying to get your work published, perhaps he's given you some ideas of how to go about it. Thanks, David. Now, I'd like to ask you a favour. If you're enjoying these podcasts, I'd just like to ask if you can spare the price of a cup of coffee to support us. I know not everyone can, so don't worry. But if you'd like to, you can click the Buy Me a Coffee button on the website. The process is very easy, and I'd really appreciate your help. Now, on to the next part of the podcast. The continuation of the workshop with Richard Tice. Last time, if you remember, we listened to Richard talk us through some Japanese examples of haiku with place names, and this time, English language haiku. We'll start with a poem from Sandra Ramgulam. Take it away, Richard. This is uh, Sandra Ramgulam out of Haiku West, January 1974. Mist above St. Paul, above the mist, wild geese. Mist above St. Paul, above the mist, wild geese. Well, thank goodness for the internet. I would not know otherwise where or what Mount Paul is. Canadians might know. Mount Paul rises above Malinga Lake in Jasper National Park in the Canadian Rockies in Alberta province. 2,850 meters high or 9,350 feet. Mount Paul is located in a subarctic climate, so mist here is probably caused by airborne ice vapor particles rather than vapor. Do you think that this has to be Mount Paul? Sitting here reading that, I'm thinking when I'm out on my bike, for example, and I'm out at about maybe eight, 800 meters, and I'm looking down onto the Zurisee, Lake Zurich, then you could do mist, mist above Lake Zurich, above the mist, the red kite. You know, you'd find something to put above the mist in there. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I went to the top of the Jungfrau. It's got the, the highest railway station in Europe. So you get up there and you, you get off the train and then you're slightly, so you've come through the mist and you're above it. And you look down onto the glacier and you see people, it was middle of summer, you see people snowing, uh, skiing. So I was thinking mist above the Jungfrau, above the mist skiers. Too short, but you know, you could, you could play with those sort of ideas. So there's plenty of potential in that one, I think, to change, change the wording and change without being exactly the same. You could, you could create something from that idea. I think it benefits from being uh, not too well known. So it suggests uh, kind of a remoteness. And then I think that last line should be something that's it's migratory or not permanent, ephemeral perhaps. 
So I get the feeling, uh, even before I learn that this is in Jasper National Park, that this is an isolated place. And that uh, not many people get to see it. But even there, in this slam, the, the wild geese are, are migrating. If you look at the thing, it's staggered. The, the lines are staggered. I think it's quite effective because it, it shows the migrating uh, form, I guess, of the wild geese. Okay, this is one of mine from Modern Haiku, summer 1985. Laughing, Kamakura's bronze Buddha fills with children. Laughing, Kamakura's bronze Buddha fills with children. The largest seated bronze Buddha in Japan resides in Kamakura, the capital of Japan during the reign of the military shogunates. Uh, the Buddha statue is hollow and tourists may enter and climb the stairs to the top. It's also a very popular stop for school trips. I think I'd prefer to leave it as Kamakura. I don't think it could be anywhere else, even if we don't know what Kamakura is. Mm -hmm. And uh, here, I think many people might wonder, well, how, how does this bronze statue fill in with children? Is it metaphorical? Well, of course, here it's literal. Mm -hmm. you know? And that's a play on the laughing Buddha. Buddha is taking a lot of joy with the children. And uh, there's some merging. So maybe it's not obvious, but this also has Yugen. Yeah. Usually uh, humor, I think, doesn't go well with Yugen. But in this case, uh, there is that, uh, or at least I attempted to uh, obliterate the boundaries between uh, belief and actuality. So the bronze Buddha here, which is a statue, is presented as alive, which is done because the children are bringing it to life. Two from James Hackett, uh, out of his book, uh, Traveler's Haiku, 2004. Cabo San Lucas, moss on siesta decorate the cool toilet wall. Cabo San Lucas, moss on siesta decorate the cool toilet wall. Cabo San Lucas is today a city of nearly 300,000 on the tip of Baja, California, the peninsula in Mexico that extends south from California. With beautiful beaches and plenty of sun, it is a top destination for boating, surfing, well watching, fishing, and cruises. Yet its reputation as a lazy, out-of-the-way destination on the Pacific still lingers more so than the other tourist destinations of Acapulco and Puerto Vallarta on the Pacific coast of Mexico. From what you've said here, it suggests to me that Cabo San Lucas is, is a sort of cool place itself, you know, cool, laid back, whatever. So it's a sort of play on, on, on the word there too. You probably could change it, but I think you'd have to find, it would have to be Spanish because of the siesta. Spanish language place. And I think the place itself would have to have that sort of reputation as well. What do you think? James Hackett was playing on its reputation as kind of being out of the way and uh, 
easygoing place to escape. And it's very hot there. So well, so there's the temperature as well as the, the cool factor. Yeah, good point. And then the other one uh, that I've chosen, Tiananmen wind, the way gusts whip all the flags into a roar of red. The Tiananmen wind, the way gusts whip all the flags into a roar of red. So in the West, Tiananmen Square is known as a place of resistance. Ironically, Tiananmen means gate of heavenly peace. It is the main entrance to the imperial city in Beijing. But just by the word uh, Tiananmen, we get history, political fervor, and I, I think this roar of red is just a stroke of genius, James Hackett's part. And uh, so this is not a place I've visited, but I've seen it in many, many photos and going back to look at some of them, there are lots of red flags all over. Actually, it's a place I've been to. I went there at a time when you could do the Forbidden City the other way around. So I entered from the, the other end and came out into, into Tiananmen Square. And yes, it's, it's a vast, vast square, as you say, with huge flags and a number of flags um, all around the edges. So yeah, and, and I don't think you could change that because at least to the, to the Western world, Tiananmen does have certain implications, doesn't it? Lines two and three, masterful use of language to sort of whip up those and stir those memories of rebellion and rage and everything that went with, with, with that terrible time in Tiananmen Square. So from Michael Dillon Welch, The Heron's Nest, May 2004. Just a side note, The Heron's Nest seldom has a haiku with place names in it. So I was astonished to find this. It's one I've seen before, but uh, I didn't know it was published in The Heron's Nest. So tripod holes in the creekside mud, Yosemite Dawn. Tripod holes in the creekside mud. Yosemite Dawn. So established as a national park in 1890, Yosemite was the second of America's national parks. It is home to towering waterfalls, sheer cliffs, mountain rivers and creeks, alpine meadows, the Yosemite Valley, with its own ecosystem and ancient forests, including the sequoia groves. So instead, we see tripod holes in mud. We are left to wonder what vista was being photographed in the dawn light. Michael loves to take photographs, though the tripod holes may have been left by another. The three holes recall the history of picture taking in Yosemite. From the photographers of the 1800s that risked travel for their plate photography to later more famous photojournalists such as Ansel Adams, the thousands of anonymous photographers and tourist photographers today. I think that could easily be transposed to somewhere else. I can think of a number of places that I've been that it would apply to. The, the one that comes to mind is, is getting up at dawn to see the famous ruins at Angkor Wat in Cambodia. Just the place was absolutely full of people with, with their cameras. But the interesting thing is, I wonder if Michael was writing it today 
would it be slightly different? It would be something about mobile phones and the, mm-hmm. you know, the pe- people waving the mobile phones almost like candles. It could definitely change. You could find places where you'd, you'd need to be up at dawn, where you would have the same majesty. And, and again, I think this one has a bit of Yugen in for me as well, because the dawn bringing that brightness and the renewal aspect to the world. It's a uh, very clever haiku in that it effaces the majesty of wherever it is at, as well as suggests it. So. Yeah, you're right. And then Carol McCreary's uh, poem from her book, The Company of Crows, 2008, Border Crossing, Cherry Petals Drift into Canada. Border Crossing, Cherry Petals Drift into Canada. So Canada is the second largest country in land area, so this Utamakara place name is enormous. Carol lives on a small peninsula bordering Canada. It actually is part of Washington state, though none of the land touches the US. So to go to the US, she has to cross the border into Canada, drive a ways and cross the border again into Washington. So the poem is actually more meaningful now since the border between Canada and the US has been closed during the pandemic. 2008, it was open. I guess an interesting example of how poems can adopt new meanings or new uh, feelings over time, or depending on the time it's read. I think it's obvious you could have used uh, another country. You could, but then you wouldn't get the the comparison between sort of the teeny, teeny petals floating into a vast expanse of space, would you? Yes. Uh-huh. I'm thinking Mexico would work, which is where we have the, in the United States, we have the the biggest problems with border crossings. True, yeah. And maybe it wouldn't work as well in uh, Europe, where it's very easy to cross all the borders. So this is one, one of mine from the anthology, A Moment's Longing, 2017. National Cemetery. P-51 flyover, trailing smoke. National Cemetery, P-51 flyover, trailing smoke. The National Cemetery is in the name of federal cemeteries for veterans. Arlington National Cemetery is the most famous. The full name of the cemetery near my home is Tahoma National Cemetery. These cemeteries feature ceremonies on Memorial Day, which is the end of May in the U.S., and Independence Day, July 4th. The P-51 is the Mustang, the legendary World War II fighter plane. This haiku takes place on Memorial Day because the P-51 is trailing smoke as if it had been hit in combat to commemorate all those in the armed forces who have lost their lives. I could change that maybe, or I have to change it substantially to get the same idea and take it over to, if you took it over to the UK and maybe Buckingham Palace, Buckingham Palace, and then you'd have to have maybe the Spitfire flyover, trailing Mm -hmm. smoke. So it changes it substantially, but you could do something along those lines. 
could certainly work in uh, in many places in Europe. Mm. It has suffered so much from war. Uh, ceremonies over Flanders fields yep. still. Yeah. And then at Normandy, where they have the airplanes flying over, certainly be uh, vintage airplanes from that period. And Spitfire would certainly work. It'd be immediately recognizable too. Mm. Unlike P-51, when the United States, they designated their planes as uh, letters and numbers, and then the names got attached to them. This was at the Tahoma National Cemetery right next to my home, and there on Memorial Day watching this. From Jay Friedenberg, Presence, March 2021. Paris Fog, the approaching clip-clop of a horse-drawn carriage. Paris fog, the approaching clip-clop of a horse-drawn carriage. So modern Paris, but here the attention is on the clip-clop of a horse and a tourist carriage today. Previously, when carriages were the norm, the sound would be on cobblestones, and perhaps it still is here. The Yugen in, this, in the fog obliterates boundaries, displacing us in time and transporting us Paris in the 1800s. I think I could put that in a number of European capital cities, but um, I mean, to me, it, it sums Paris. It's, it's Paris, definitely. It's, it's Vienna. I could hear the, see the fog and the, hear the horses in, the, in Vienna, which also has the history behind it. I think you could interchange that one, mm-hmm. but it, it works pretty well. It works very yeah. well. Uh, London, I think, would work. Yeah, I suppose. But possibly not as well as, I mean, trying to think of the, the cobbled stones of London. Not so good as Paris or, or mm-hmm. Vienna. So there's a, a lot of senses in here. Paris yeah. yeah. is tactile. And then the clip-clop is a sound. And then we imagine the... Uh, horse-drawn carriage finally emerging from the uh, the fogs to where we can see it. So it's got sight, sound, and t- touch in this. Mm. It takes us uh, out of our present period, present uh, experience. And so uh, and that's one of the key marks of Yugen. So yes. Taking us out of the ordinary. From Nicholas Kleksansky, the anthology Last Train Home in 2021. Obscuring the view of Kiev, Stranger's Fingerprints. Obscuring the view of Kiev, Stranger's Fingerprints. So Nicholas lives part of the time in Seattle and part in Kiev. Notice he uses the Ukrainian spelling of the city's name, K-Y-I-V. Interesting that something as small as fingerprints on glass can obscure a grand skyline. The fingerprints are temporary and have their own unknown history compared to the more permanent city with its own largely unknown history of millions of inhabitants. I do think you can you could change the Kiev for anywhere anywhere you wanted. Kiev does give it a certain um, it gives it, it gives it a sense of history, I think, and and very much a sense of, of place and 
it's gives it to me it gives it a very strong visual the other thing i suppose we haven't looked at except fleetingly is the rhythm of the word or rhythm of the city or rhythm of the place that you're going to use as well so kiev works wonderfully rhythmically and in terms of a euphony as, as brad bennett would say but there are a number of a number of cities that you could possibly put in there or even towns i don't think they have to be big well-known places either because the other thing i get from from this it goes back to was it Basha we were talking about the the Kyoto poem where you get that very that sense of yearning and longing for a place I sort of feel that within the poem too that he's longing for the view of Kiev but he can't see it and through the the strangest fingerprints and I like the mystery also about where is he is he looking out from his home unlikely because it's strangers is he looking out of an office block is he on a bus or a tram and can't see the city? So there's lots going on in that that poem for me. And then much like um, some of the other poems that we've talked about and that, that you've brought to today's presentation, the interesting thing is that there's a, a bit of a change of emotion given the situation we find ourselves in, obscuring the view of Kiev, strangers' fingerprints. So now we, there's the slight horror of seeing somebody's fingerprints. You don't know who it was and who's touched it and what, whether they've got COVID. You know, it's, it's, that's what the world has brought us to when you see something that doesn't belong to you. Do you, know, do you see what I mean with that? It, Probably heightened because of the pandemic, this yeah. feeling of uh, germs. And, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to me, this has a... Uh, Strong feeling nostalgia, like uh, you had suggested. This is uh, Nicholas's second hometown, I guess. I get the feeling that he's returning. Could be leaving on the train, but I think he's returning, and then it's it's not the same Kiev because of the stranger's fingerprints. And I'm not a, only obscuring. Well, they obscure the view, both... Uh, internally and externally yes as you as you speak i can i see myself on the on a ferry going back to to the uk and entering via the white cliffs of dover the windows are slightly obscured so i could play with that one and come up with with something else uh, for nicholas uh, this is very personal i think for many readers it takes us to places that we have great affinity for mm. You know, and that maybe changes have occurred. If I were to return to uh, Japan and live there for a while, it would be a Japanese place for me. And it takes me kind of to that. This is another uh, example of where the place name is important, but it, it changes for each reader. We've seen uh, several examples of haiku with place names. Uh, writing them is a little bit tricky. So in writing haiku with place names, consider that the place name may act as a setting and as, as in Venice Street Market, or as a focus, as in the Amazon of Milky Way descending to the sea. So the place name, either as a setting or as a focus, can work as long as the name adds more significance. The depth in the place name may lie in history or culture, 
identity and meaning, characteristics, experience, or even just the feeling you have for the place. So I suggest that rather than trying to write about a place, you write about what is happening in or with the place. You might also look at some of your previously written haiku and see if a place name would work more effectively in some of those poems. That's certainly the case with me where so many people have tried to keep me from writing place names and be very general. So to summarize, the place name either as a setting or as a focus is okay. And ask yourself, what depth does the place name add? Write about what is happening in the place. Just You're not trying to define the place or, or tell, tell us about it. And see if some of your existing haiku work better with a place name. So I hope those suggestions may help. And I hope that uh, Patricia will be flooded with wonderful haiku with Utamakara place names. So thank you, Richard. I'm sure I'm going to be flooded with wonderful examples of place name haiku when it comes to it. But in ending, I just wanted to let you know that I have written one and had it published. Ellis Island, sharing dust motes with adventurers. Ellis Island, sharing dust motes with adventurers, which was published in Failed Haiku, issue 61 in December last year. Richard, thanks again for all the time and work you put into those two wonderful workshops. Don't forget that you can read all the poems Richard spoke about in the show notes. Do go along and have a read. I thought I'd just finish up by mentioning something else that the use of place names really anchors your poem in its environment. And I'd like to give you one more example to illustrate it. It's by Marion Clark and was first published in Modern Haiku, issue 45.2. Carlingford Loch, a heron crosses the moon. Carlingford Loch, a heron crosses the moon. As I did when I spoke with Richard, I asked myself the question, could this poem be written using another place name? Which I'd like to point out is not a criticism. It's just a way of analysing the poem. And in this case, I think the answer is yes. I could place it in a couple of places. For example, Jungfrau, a heron crosses the moon. Jungfrau. A heron crosses the moon. In this poem, which is placed at the top of a mountain, there's no rippling water, no gentle lapping of waves. There is the picture of the mountains, the moon and the heron. Whereas in Carlingford Loch, there are two pictures, because you have the reflection. And here's another example. Brighton Beach. A heron crosses the moon. Brighton Beach. A heron crosses the moon. Once more, the setting on Brighton Beach gives a different poem. In this one, you do have the water, 
but the reflection on the sea is more difficult to see, don't you think? You still have the sound, but this time you have the sound of waves on a shingle beach, which is very different from the sound of waves on the lake. It's also possible that whilst you could hear the heron crossing the moon at Carlingford Loch, perhaps that sound is drowned out by the waves on the beach. And of course, the look of the waves is very different in the Brighton Beach version. So I hope you can see that even though I've said you can change the location, anchoring the place in your poem does make a difference to the feel of it. Now I hope you're submitting this month to the place names topic. Don't forget, emails only please, and your deadline is the 20th of August 2021. Thank you. Next time on the podcast, we're going to hear more of your original work. This time the topic was Yugen. We had more submissions than ever before for that topic. And I have to say a big thank you to James Young, Robert Horobin, and Vandana Parashar, who were the editors for submissions for that podcast. You certainly kept them busy. Thank you. I'm looking forward to joining you again in a couple of weeks. But until then... Keep writing. If there's anything missing from the show, please drop me an email and I'll do my best to put it right. Ciao.